Genesis chapter 2. Today we're going to be looking at an incredibly important passage. It's difficult to overstate how important of a passage this actually is. Today we're going to be continuing in the garden. We're going to see what life is like the garden as we rapidly move towards Genesis 3 and the fall, the introduction of sin and where we learn what all we lost with sin. You might remember a couple weeks ago, Kenny Clark preached on the beginning of Genesis 2 and, and we talked about this idea that God rested from his created work and there was a Sabbath rest and now we are people who are called to rest in God. We're to rest in Christ now. Uh, uh, we have a certain gospel peace and a certain gospel rest as those who have believed in Jesus. And then Eric Twisselman last week took us to consider the mission of man. And so being those who rest in Christ, who, who uh, find their peace in Christ, we now work unto the Lord. We seek to participate in God's mission, ruling and subduing the earth. We have a pre-fall mission and we know now that we have a post-fall mission. And all that leads us to this morning. And now we're going to see how we are to carry out this mission that God has given us. Through what avenues, through what venues are we to carry out this mission? And what we're going to see is that this mission is to be carried out in the context of relationship. Relationship. Our time in the morning is... Our time in the word this morning is going to be spent considering relationships. It's going to stand at the center of everything that we talk about today. We're going to deal with relationships generally and see how God works through relationships and employs relationships for his purposes. And then we're going to narrow and we're going to consider a key relationship through which God works incredibly uniquely and mightily to bring about his glory and his praises here on this earth. So that's where we're going to be, considering relationships this morning. Two points around this, two points. And both of these points are going to interact with each other and, and they're going to tell us what roles relationships play in the bigger kingdom purposes of God. So two points. First, God advances his kingdom through community. God advances his kingdom through community. God did not make us to be lone rangers. God did not make us to be lone rangers. God did not make us to be people who live in isolation. No, we are to go throughout this life and we're to do this all bound up with one another. So that's first point. Second, God advances his kingdom uniquely through the relationship of marriage. God advances his kingdom uniquely through marriage. We start more general and then we narrow to this very key relationship through which God will advance his kingdom purposes, marriage. So that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to see this from Genesis 2 verses 18 through 25. So if you have your Bibles, would you please read with me now? Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, 
there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, we come to you humbled and we come to you confidently in the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would bless this time. You would give us eyes to see the truth of your word. We pray that by your spirit, you would uniquely help us to wrestle and apply this word to our lives. Uh, We offer you this time as an act of worship. Please, Lord, do with it what you will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so once again, this morning, our first point is that God advances his kingdom through community. He advances his kingdom through community. And I think we see this right off the get-go from verse, or in verse 18. God advances his kingdom through community. We're not meant to be lone rangers. We're not meant to do this life in isolation. So where does verse 18 start? In an astounding place. An absolutely astounding place. Verse 18, it is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. It's not good that man should be alone. Why is that astounding? Why is that astounding? Well, because God has spent up to this point telling us how good his creation is. In fact, his creation is exceedingly good. Seven different times we see that it is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. And then we see this climactic declaration that God's creation is very good. And then we come to verse 18. And there's an implication here that that something in this very good creation, something in this exceedingly good creation is actually deficient. It's deficient. Something is lacking in this creation. Something is not good. So consider this from Adam's perspective. Consider Adam's experience of the garden. Adam had perfect safety he had perfect safety he didn't have to lock his doors at night he had a beautiful home the garden was not a dull place it was a beautiful place a place that he was able to enjoy he experienced satisfying stimulating and meaningful work he wasn't you know just punching a time card feeling like he was wasting his life away His practical needs were met. He had food. He had a place to lay his head at night. He was warm. And he even had communion with God. He walked with God. He talked with God. Even though Adam possessed all of these things, all of these amazing things, things that we would think, surely these are sufficient things to leave Adam satisfied. Even though he possessed all of these things, there was something lacking. Something not right, something deficient, something that left him crying out for more. 
And so God considers Adam. And as he considers him, he lets us in on a secret to how he has created man. It is not good that he be alone. It is not good that he be alone. In other words, it is man is not meant to live in isolation. God made mankind to experience and enjoy community. He made mankind to experience and enjoy community. And God not only made us for community, he not only made mankind for community, but he made mankind to be a diverse community, to experience a diverse community. Look at verse 18 again. What did God do after declaring it was not good that man be alone? He declared that he would make a helper fit for him, a helper fit for him. And if we know the story, we know that this helper that was made fit for him is actually woman. He makes woman a helper who is fit for him. Now this phrase, there's two things I want us to see from this phrase, but before we get there, I just want to offer a couple comments. First, I want to start with what I hope is very apparent, and that is that I am not a woman. I'm not a woman, and yet I'm standing before you and I'm speaking in some ways about the purpose of womankind. I know for some of you that may seem very strange or very difficult. And for some of you, you might come in having experienced certain things and having felt certain ways and believed certain things that that me standing up here automatically disqualifies me from being able to speak here. And if that's you, I just want to urge you, please suspend that. Please suspend that. I am not going to stand up here and just trying to trumpet my views and my thoughts. I want to do my absolute best to not stand here based on any authority that I have or don't have. Rather, I want to stand on the word of God, the authoritative word of God. And so I will do my absolute best to stay with the scripture and speak the scripture plainly. So I want to ask you to to lean in here with me. And then also, I, I just want to give kind of a disclaimer. This passage has all sorts of implications for men and women's roles in the church and in the family. Uh, We'll get to some of that here in a little bit, but for the time being, as as we look at this particular point in this particular passage, we're going to seek to draw out the most general principles. We're going to look at this in a basic way and seek to apply this to all of mankind and not look at it in that narrow sense of men and women and their roles just yet. So we're going to live at kind of a 30,000 foot view here for a little while. So with that said, two things that we want to see in this phrase. God declared that he would make a helper fit for man. And this helper would be woman. So two things. First, the word helper. The word helper. Man needs a helper. Man needs a helper. And here we find one of the unique aspects of womankind. God created woman to be a helper. To be a helper. Womankind is to help man in his mission to rule and subdue the earth. This is God's word. God's word says this. He created woman to be man's helper. But what does this mean? What does this mean? So many of us are conditioned to read the word helper and to automatically read into that uh, negative connotations. We see it as a demeaning word. We see it as a humiliating word. It's not a helpful word as we seek to understand who we are and how we've been made. But I don't think that need be the case. All you have to do is look and see how this word helper is actually used and employed in the Old Testament. Primarily, this word helper is actually used to describe God himself. 
It's used to speak of divine assistance. Where does my help come from? It comes from the maker of heavens, of the heavens and the earth. Over and over and over again, who is the helper in the Old Testament? It's God. It's the almighty, all-sufficient, powerful, wonderful God. The second place that this word is over and over again employed, military aid. Military aid. It's used to describe an army being bolstered, reinforcements coming in, a second army even. This word is anything but weak. It is anything but lacking. It is anything but deficient or humiliating. Notice a strong, powerful, vital word. To be a helper is an important thing. It's a vital thing. As one author says, to help, one, to help someone does not imply that the helper is stronger or weaker than the helped. Simply that the latter's strength is inadequate by itself. The latter's strength is inadequate by itself. That's the idea that I think we're seeing here. Man is inadequate by himself. And in fact, woman is inadequate by herself. Man is inadequate. He needs a helper. And so God in his goodness sets out to make a helper fit for him. Fit for him. It's the second phrase that I want us to pay attention to. It's such an important phrase here. It literally means that God made a helper like opposite man. Like opposite man. This could be a confusing phrase and it can also be a phrase that offends our modern sensibilities. Many of us would much rather this phrase that God, uh, would much rather this phrase say that God made a helper like him. Like him. Exactly like him. Maybe looks different, but is just like him. But if that phrase were to say that, that God made a, a helper like him, what we would see is gender would be flattened. Gender would be flattened. No more distinctives in gender. But more importantly, God's truth and his authority and his beauty wrapped up in his creation, all of that would be done away with. Because God's word here does speak. This is God's word. And the phrase is that God made a helper who is like opposite him. This is the reality of God's word. Now that still leaves us with the question, what does that mean that God made a helper like opposite? That seems to be contradictory. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, but it does. It does. Think of a puzzle and think of puzzle pieces. God made man as one puzzle piece. And he didn't set out to make a helper puzzle piece that is exactly like him. No, that would still leave him needing another piece. The puzzle would be incomplete if God made him another piece exactly like him. But no, God made a, a puzzle piece that is like opposite of him, a piece that corresponds to the original puzzle piece. A puzzle piece that fits perfectly with the man. A puzzle piece that, uh, that holds up strengths and holds up weaknesses and balances those and works together with those. That's what we see happening in this story. God is kind and he is wise in creating man and creating woman and creating them in complementary ways so that they benefit one another. So that one is strong in an area that the other is weak. We see them fit together and they fit together perfectly. So what's the point in this? What's the point in this? The point is that we need community. We need community. 
We need community and we need it to be a diverse community. We need it to be a diverse community. We need others to complement us so that we can thrive, so that we can flourish as human beings. But not only that, we need these things so that we can thrive. Yes, absolutely. But we need these things so that we can uniquely accomplish the mission of God that he has set out for us. That's the big thing that I want us to see here. The word helper implies that there is a mission. God didn't simply make woman. He didn't make this corresponding puzzle piece to just hang out with men. No, that there, there is a mission. There is something she is to come along and actually help with. This implies mission. What is this mission? We talked about it last week. In the garden, God gave men the responsibility of ruling and subduing the earth, of exercising dominion. We live this side of the fall, this side of Easter, and we know that the mission has taken on a little bit of a different shape. We're still called to rule and exercise dominion on this earth, but we do it differently. We seek to bring all things under the subjection of the Lord Jesus. And how do we do that as a church? Matthew 28 lays it out for us. We make disciples. We go and we proclaim the gospel and we teach. We make disciples. And this passage, I believe, is telling us that, that men and women, a diverse community, a community that is different in all sorts of ways are necessary for us to come together and accomplish these things that the Lord has given for us. Man is vital to this mission. Woman is vital to this mission. Man is to take the initial responsibility and woman is to, woman is to come alongside him and help him in carrying out this mission. Both are vital. Both are absolutely necessary. And so now we seek to carry out the great, the great commission. We seek to make disciples of all nations. This is the mission of the church. And this is something that we collectively, corporately participate in. That we link arms in and we go for together. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? God is advancing his kingdom through community and a diverse community at that. So what do we do with this? There are so many ways that I think we can apply this passage of scripture, but three come to mind that I think are really important for us as a faith family to wrestle with. First, we embrace the church. We embrace the church. And not only that, but we uniquely embrace the local church, the community found within the local church. We dig in. We buy in, we plant our flag here. We embrace this body of believers as our faith family. We embrace the local church and then linked arm in arm, we go out and we advance seeking to make disciples of all nations. We participate in the mission of God being united in Christ as a believing body. You know, grace has this ministry value of simplicity. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. We have a ministry value of simplicity. And the, the idea behind that is, is that we make intentional choices not to overburden you. There are lots of good things we can do with our time and our energy and our resources, but we don't want to put so many things out there so that you are undone and that you're overburdened. And the purpose behind this is not so that you can have more time to devote to Netflix. It's not so that we can have more time for me time. That's not to say that me time is always a bad thing. In fact, it could be a great thing, but that's not the idea behind the ministry value of simplicity. No, what we desire in this is that there would be margin created in this community. 
margin, space, so that we could be a people who have the opportunity, who have the space, who have the ability to come together as a church and actually sit across from one another at the dinner table. Do we have the margin, the space, the energy to actually go to Grace Group and to wrestle with the word well as a community? That we can wrestle with it and get in it, not just living in the clouds, but seek to apply the word and get it in our heads and get it in our hearts. We want you to have the space and the energy and the margin so that you can actually go to your neighbor, neighbors and preach the gospel. So that you can interact with your kids or with your wife or with your husband. We want you to, to embrace the church. This is a, a problem that's universal amongst the church. So I don't mean to pick on grace in particular with this, but the reality is that there are some of us who are merely flirting with the church. Some of us who are merely flirting with the church. We come, we show up sometimes, yes, but, but this really isn't our home. This isn't the place that we, have, that we have put our foundation on. This isn't our family. I just want to say there's not really a category for that sort of involvement in the local church in the scriptures. Now we're to be a people who embrace the church, who dive headlong in. What does that look like? There are so many ways we can do that. There are so many ways we can do that. Grace group participation, small group participation, serving within the local church, having the mindset that I'm going to come and I'm going to pour myself out rather than merely consume every single week. I, I consider the children's ministry who is always in need of volunteers. They're always stretched thin. We could plug in there. We could serve our local church. You realize that we gather monthly to take communion together on a Sunday night. We come and we approach the table and we remember what Christ did and we proclaim his death together as a faith family. Come to that. We have a congregational meeting tonight. Come to that. Be a part of what we're doing here in this church. Own the things that we're about and, and link arms with those who are around you and seek to know one another and seek to be known that we might grow into maturity, that we might participate in the mission of God. Embrace the church. So that's first. Two, we celebrate our sameness. We celebrate our sameness. Every single person within the people of God is linked and vitally important. We're linked in that we are created in the image of God. Every single one of us has equal value, worth, and dignity. We're linked because we are all, those of us who are in Christ, we're linked by the blood of Christ. We believe in the priesthood of all believers here. We believe, in summary, that we are competent ministers of the gospel, not because of the, our titles, not because of the stage that we stand on, not because we went to a certain school or have a certain degree. None of that makes us competent to be a minister of the gospel. Rather, we are competent ministers of the new covenant of the gospel only by the blood of Jesus. And so we gather, we unite, being united in the blood of Christ, and we seek to unite in purpose and go and do the mission of God. We are the same in Christ. In a very real sense, we are the same. And so regardless of where we are in life, regardless of if we're married, if we're single, regardless of if we're young or if we're older, regardless of our socioeconomic status, regardless of our race, regardless of who we are or where we are in our life, if we are in Christ, we are the same. And so we celebrate that. We recognize this is a beautiful result of the gospel. So we celebrate our sameness. But two, or three, we celebrate and we utilize our differences. 
We celebrate and we utilize our differences wrapped up in the idea of woman being made a helper fit for man is that men and women aren't the same. Men and women are not the same. They are equal in value and worth and dignity, yes, but they are not the exact same. They're made complementary. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's true of all of us within the church. At the most general level, this is true for every single one of us. You are not like me. I am not like you. For some, for some categories of people, this is just blatantly obvious. I don't know what it's like to experience being a woman. I don't know what it's like to have been married for 30 years. I don't know what it's like to have more than one child. I don't know what it's like to have a lot of money. <laughs> we can go on and on and on, but, but some of you know what these things are like and you can help me and you could shore up my weaknesses in these things and then we can leak arms and we can go out and we can do the mission of God together. We can worship God in the midst of our diversity. I, I just can't help but, Look at Beth Stevens over here, who's part of our ministry team in the youth ministry. And she uniquely brings an aspect uh, of wisdom uh, just from a lot of life experience to our ministry team. But she also brings the perspective of a mom who's had children actually go through our youth ministry. She brings the perspective of a woman and is able to uniquely help us to understand what the students of grace might be dealing with. She's able to uniquely minister to our female leaders. It's a blessing having her and I could not do the things that she's able to do because she is part of our team. There's a difference there. It's a beautiful difference. And we work out of that. God in his wisdom has seen fit to organize his church in such a way where there are corresponding parts. There are lots of different puzzle pieces and they fit together to make this beautiful puzzle. He has made us as a body and in that body, there's hands and there's feet and there's eyes and there's, there's all sorts of things. And all of these parts are vital and necessary, although they are different. And so regardless of who you are, of what you are, please know this. God, I believe, wants you to know that you are vital. You are vital to this church. You are necessary to this church. And God desires to use you. He desires to use you. And so we as a church, we seek to celebrate and utilize the differences uh, amongst our people. So once again, our first point is that community is central to the mission of God. Community is central to the mission of God. God has designed us for community. This is part of what it means to be a human being. Not only that, it's through community that we actually accomplish the purposes for which we are created. This is the broad principle. This is the big principle, but now there is a narrowing effect. There's a very specific application of this that, that the Bible is going to uh, lay out for us. And this leads us to our second point. God advances his kingdom uniquely through marriage. Generally through community, uniquely through marriage. I think we see this really uh, in our entire passage, uh, starting in verse 19 all the way to 25. What's going on in these verses on our previous point, we saw that God recognized something off or insufficient in man. This points us back to, to even the fact that God is a relational God and there's perfect relationship within the Trinity, but there's something off in us. And so God uh, sets out to make a helper fit for man so that we might experience community, that we might be satisfied. And so now we actually see the working out of that. We see the working out of God actually making a companion for man. 
And this happens with a procession. It happens with a procession. God brings all of the animals, God brings all of the animals that were formed from the ground. And this is important because up until this point, there's no living created thing that was not formed from the ground. He brings all of these things and he parades them in a holy procession before Adam. And Adam was given the task of naming these animals. For Adam, I think this serves dual purposes. uh, The purpose of subduing the earth while also exercising authority or dominion over the earth. That's part of what's wrapped up in naming. To name means you possess authority over. But it seems as if God is doing something else here as well. Not only is he naming, not only is he being obedient and participating in what God has called him to do, but there is a heightening of man's state here. There's an anticipation of what is to come. Here we're being led in on the fact that man is lonely. And there's, a, there's an anticipation that this loneliness will actually be dealt with. But more and more we're seeing how, how significant this circumstance actually is. Man is lonely and there is not a suitable helper for him. This parade of animals just magnifies that in Adam's mind. Makes me think, uh, when I was in middle school, I used to watch this old, terrible dating reality TV show on MTV called Singled Out. Uh, I share that now because it was so long ago that I feel like, you know, it's safe for me to share that from up here. But it was a bad show. It was a superficial show. I don't recommend you, you look it up. But the idea behind this show was there would be a contestant and, uh, and then there would be a whole group of people behind him. So it'd be a guy and then a bunch of girls or a girl and a bunch of guys. And the contestant would answer, sim- answer simple questions. So do you like brunettes or do you like blondes? And if he said, oh, I like blondes, then all the brunettes were eliminated and they'd have to go around and they'd have to walk in front of the contestant and he would see them all as they walked by. So lots of questions. Do you like rap music or do you like country music? Oh, I like rap music. So all the people who like country would have to go and they'd go in this procession in front of him. And inevitably what would happen in every one of these shows is somebody would eventually walk in front of him and he'd go, no, no. That's exactly what I was wanting. Ah, and there'd be this just this devastation as he saw his probably not future spouse walk in front of him. And as I consider this story, and as I think about this story, I have to imagine that what Adam experienced was not like that, right? Cows are paraded in front of Adam and he's looking at them. It's like, Lord, really? There is nothing in me that desires this. That is not a fit companion for me. There was no puzzle piece for Adam. But God. But God. God in his kindness, in his mercy, he brought a deep sleep over Adam. And he took one of his ribs and he fastened from that rib woman. This is such a wonderful and mysterious thing. It's something that I lack the words to adequately uh, uh, tell you how wonderful and mighty this is. Matthew Henry is a famous commentator 
he kind of has the statement that I think captures what's happening here in a beautiful and poetic way. He says this, not made out of his head to top him, not made out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. Near his heart to be beloved. Once again, this is a mysterious thing. And I think this probably captures something of what's happening in this process. And so what we see is that God moves all of this forward. All of this forward to a wonderful and a climactic point. He brings woman to Adam. He presents woman to Adam for the very first time. And what do we see as a result? We see man's very first recorded words. His very first recorded words. And they are poetry. They're praise, they're thanksgiving. This at last, this at last is bone of my bones. This at last is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What a beautiful description. What a beautiful description of the heart that every husband should endeavor to have for his wife. Here Adam erupts into praise. He erupts into praise. He erupts into thanksgiving for finally, at last, there is one like him. There is one who is made of the same stuff that he is made of. One that he can enjoy relationship with. And she is presented by God and she stands there in all of her beauty and all of her glory and she is perfect. I've been scrolling through my Facebook over the past couple days. Yesterday was the anniversary of the day that I asked Ray Lynn to marry me. And so that's been popping up in my Facebook in different ways. And, and it just makes me think that what that question that I asked Ray Lynn meant was that six months later, I stood right there. I stood right there and I saw a procession of bride, bridesmaids come past me. And they came and they stood right here on this stage. And then there was a point where the door, that door opened and everybody stood up and I couldn't see anything. And then all of a sudden around this corner comes my bride. And I got to see her for the very first time on my wedding day. And what I felt in my heart was at last, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, at last. Do you know why when we're at weddings, we look at the face of the groom? Do, we, do you know why we get so excited about that, that amazing face when he first sees his bride? It's because this is what's happening in his heart. That's what we see on his face at last. At last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. How instructive is this for us as husbands? How instructive is this for us as wives that we might have this kind of heart towards our spouses? A holy gift and a holy blessing that we do not deserve. May the Lord help us to foster this sort of heart. Our, our story ends with this declaration of poetry and then God steps in. He says, therefore, 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 because of the mission of God that he has given, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. In other words, man will no longer have his first loyalty be to his parents, but to his wife. He and his wife will be united together in a spiritual, emotional, physical, and even a sexual way. And this will all be sealed in the covenant of marriage. 
of marriage. I mentioned this at the onset of our time, but this passage is so important for us. It's so instructive for us. It's become an archetypal sort of passage for marriage and for how we understand so much of life. This speaks to monogamy in marriage. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. This speaks to who is qualified for marriage, one man and one woman. This speaks to gender roles in the family. Man is to be the head who names and is to lead, and is to lead graciously while the woman is to be his helper. It speaks to the importance of sex in marriage. It speaks to the value of marriage, even if procreation isn't a possibility. It speaks to the value of family and the importance of family in society. And it goes on and on and on. Such an important passage for us to dig into, to mine for its gold. If you remember back to our point though, what we're seeing here is that marriage is a way that God moves his kingdom forward. It's a way that God moves his kingdom forward. There's a narrowing effect here. We begin general and now we see the specific relationship through which God is going to advance his kingdom. I think this is clearly seen in our passage itself. That word therefore is very striking. The the reason that marriage is instituted, there's a therefore, there's a reason. And it's because God has given a mission. But we see this so clearly and plainly laid out in the New Testament in the book of Ephesians with Paul. Paul speaks of marriage when he says this, this mystery marriage is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the the wife see that she respects her husband. In other words, we're seeing, what we're seeing here in Genesis in this marriage, this is to be something that reflects the future relationship between Christ and his church. From the beginning, when God designed this marriage, it is set up to reflect the love of Christ for his bride. The love of Christ for you and for me. Now marriage is to be lived out in such a way that God's mission is advanced. Marriage uniquely heralds the love and the authority of Christ to a lost and dying world. This is laid out for us in Ephesians 5. A husband is to love his wife self-sacrificially as Christ loved the church. He's to lay his life down for her. And as he does, he heralds the love of Christ to a lost and dying world. He says that Christ loves you to the extent that he will die for you, that he might redeem you and bring you to himself. And similarly, when a wife submits and respects her husband as his helper, she displays to a lost and a dying world that Christ is worthy of all respect. He is worthy of all honor. He is worthy of our admiration. You see, in this marriage is meant to display the manifold wisdom of God, the goodness of God, the love of God. When marriage is lived out in really normal ways, It tells the world that God is pursuing the world in his son, Jesus. God advances his kingdom through the unique relationship of marriage. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this as a church, especially uh, as a church where not all of us are married? What does this look like? First, we fight to protect the sanctity of marriage. We fight to protect the sanctity of marriage. And I'm not trying to make a primarily political point here, although I do think that that is certainly a place where we can and should engage this fight. No, I'm thinking more about fighting for the sanctity of marriage in our homes, in our grace groups, even in our bedrooms. 
Let us fight for the sanctity of marriage in the way that we talk about marriage. Let there be no more of this foolish ball and chain type talk about marriage. No, let us hold this in high honor. Let us fight for the sanctity of marriage in the way that we encourage our friends to love their husbands and their wives. What sort of questions are we asking our friends? What sort of encouragement are we offering? Are we encouraging them to die to themselves? Let's fight for the sanctity of marriage in what we do or what we don't look at on TV or on the internet. Let's fight for the sanctity of marriage and how we prepare for marriage as we pursue personal holiness. And even as we boldly and courageously seek to step out and, uh, and pursue marriage, God's glory is at stake here. We must be diligent if loving and respecting our husbands or wives reflects the gospel, then failing to love or respect our husbands or wives said that there is something wrong or deficient in Christ. If we fail to love our wives as Christ loved the church husbands, then we are telling the world that Christ does not truly love them. Maybe he loves them in deed or in word, but not in deed. Wives, if you fail to submit and respect your husbands and you are declaring to a lost and dying world that Jesus is not safe, he is not worthy of, his author- or of your respect, he's not worthy of your honor. No, let us reject this. Let us fight for the sanctity of marriage that Christ might be exalted and that we might participate in his mission. This is a call for all of us. This is for married folks. This is for non-married folks. This is our job as the church to protect this thing. Let us fight for the sanctity of marriage too. Last, and to close, let us cultivate a heart that cries at last. Let's cultivate a heart that cries at last. I hope and I pray that as a result of our time spent in the word this morning, that we have hearts that are bolstered that we marvel at the wisdom and the goodness of God in giving us gifts like community and marriage, that we are uh, compelled to participate in the mission of God. But I think more than anything, and my main hope and prayer for us today is that a result of our time spent in the word, that husbands and wives would love one another, that they would love one another. Let us be the sort of community that fights to foster hearts that cry at last. What would it look like if we spent the energy that we so often use in watching TV, in working out, in our hobbies or any other thing, what if we spent some of that energy investing in fostering intimacy within marriage? What if we fought to be experts in our spouse's strengths rather than experts in their weaknesses? What if we went there in grace groups? What if we went there at the dinner table? What if we went there when our friends came over? What if we fostered this sort of heart before marriage? What if young single people sought to grow in Christ and to be mature in Christ that one day they might present themselves as a good spouse? What would it look like for those people who might have the gift of singleness to actually come alongside their family and their friends and support them as they seek to foster these things? Let us wrestle well with these things. If we own this as a body, if we own this as a church, then I imagine that Christ would be exalted. I imagine that the gospel would be heralded in power and in truth in our community and amongst the nations. And I imagine there would be a lot of satisfied husbands and wives out there. 
And all of this would be to the praise of God's glorious grace. And so let's seek to do this together as a faith family. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son Jesus. We thank you that we can do everything that we're doing here today because of him. That we can worship you. That we can uh, come and we can have knowledge of who you are because you were kind to reveal us, to reveal or to take off our blinders and to give us spiritual eyes to see you. Lord, now I pray that you would help us, that you would help us to engage in what you have called us to, to be truly human and to be involved in community, to love one another, to be for one another and to link arms in mission. Lord, I pray for our marriages in this church. Would you help us to be your arms and your feet? Help us to love one another. Help us to be means of grace. Help us to point one another to Christ. Lord, I pray that through marriage you would wonderfully and marvelously display your glorious grace. Help us in these things, Lord. Uh, We need you. There's no way we can stand apart from your grace. And so we appeal to you, Lord, in all of our weakness and all of our insufficiency, we look to you who who is sufficient. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.